All right. Well, tomorrow, today we are beginning what is a series on doctrine or sort of the historical core Christian beliefs. We are done with our New Testament overview, but we're a church, so we're never getting out of the New Testament. We will always come back to Scripture, of course, but um, that long project in which we looked at each book of the New Testament has kind of come to a close. So today we're going to begin a series on doctrine. And if when I say the word doctrine, what comes to mind? Other than a nap. <laughs> right. That's a word we throw out and people just kind of, their eyes roll the back of their head and they don't want to talk about it. And, uh, but it's, it's really important. But So if I asked you, what, what is doctrine? What would your answer be? What we believe, right? It is, it is the core statements, proposals of our faith. Um, it is what we believe. Um, and doctrine literally is teaching. It is teaching or instruction. And so when we go back into the letters that we've just looked at and we see Paul instructing Timothy and Titus, to teach sound doctrine, uh, this is exactly what he's talking about. And doctrine in a church context is sort of the, the, the official teaching of the church that gives us our shape, our identity, our formation. Um, and w- w- there are many ways in which to describe or talk about doctrine. One of the ones that I find most helpful is to, to break doctrines into groups, one being a closed-handed doctrine and another open-handed Closed-handed are the core fundamentals. So if we go back to our description about uh, uh, bounded versus open sets, and we talked about how in an open set you can be at different ends of spectrums of belief, but as long as you're moving towards Jesus in the middle, you can come from your worldview and your perspective. I can come from mine. We can disagree on things, but we're both moving towards Jesus. Then we're both essentially Christians. But we have to describe what the middle is. We have to describe Jesus. We have to say some things about what that middle is. And the closed-handed doctrines are the things that are non-negotiable. They are the statements of faith and belief about Jesus and about God and about the church and the world and what God is doing in the world that are fundamental to define what Christianity is. And these are things that are the same regardless of what church you walk into. So if you walk into a Pentecostal church or a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church or here, or even an Eastern Orthodox church, although there's some discrepancy in there, by and large, every church is going to agree on the core closed-handed doctrines. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we go forward. There's another segment and sort of classification of doctrine, which we could say is open-handed. And these are the doctrines that have developed within the various streams of Christianity over time as we describe other things. So things like is predestination a thing? Does God foreordain everything in the world? Um, what happens in the, at communion, in the Eucharist? These are, these are theologies that have developed, and de- depending on which church tradition you're in, you'll say something different. And at the end, the closed-handed doctrines are important because they are hopefully universal and definitive, and the open-handed doctrines, well, they are important, but we can disagree and still be Christians. Does that make sense? So what we're talking about are the ones that are definitive of Christianity, that there really is no debate about, that have existed for 2,000 years. So we're going back into the first couple hundred years of the church to see what they were saying in order to bring forward those core initial teachings, those doctrines. What was it that Paul said needs to be held on to as sound teaching and sound doctrine? And all the other stuff, which is sort of secondary and tertiary and perhaps even beyond that, we're just kind of let me out there for now. If you have questions about the sorts of things, I love to talk about it. But at the end, disagreeing about that is okay. We can all still be Christians. We're in the same family. We all believe Jesus. What are we saying about Jesus? What are we saying about God and the world and, and how all that works? So those are the closed-handed doctrines. 
They are what binds us together as Christians across the many branches and traditions of Christianity. And so to do that, we're going to use the Apostles' Creed. And if you've been part of this church for a long time, I've been made aware, Mike, let me know that Mitch has taught through the Apostles' Creed before. Um, we're not teaching the creed. What we're going to do is we're going to use the creed as an avenue or a roadmap to go through some deeper theology. We'll, get, we'll use it as sort of a jumping off point to talk about some of the points that are in the creed itself. Um, but why would we use a creed? Well, a creed is one of these ancient historical statements. Um, they were the early doctrinal statements of the church. We talked before, a few weeks ago, we looked at the Nicene Creed, and we are talking about uh, the Trinity a little bit, which we're going to address again in another way in, in the coming weeks. Um, but they were developed in, in response largely to problems or questions, a lot of times heresies, different teachings. Um, when, when that happened, the church got together, those, the bishops, which we talked about, the heads of all the church, would get together and they would debate and they would hash out exactly what, uh, what the tradition that they've inherited says to make sure that uh, these challenges are refuted. And in doing that, they developed creeds, which were official statements of the church that would be uh, repeated over and over. Even today, we say the Apostles' Creed, we say the Nicene Creed. There's a creed that came out of uh, the Council at Constantinople. There's a series of them from the first few hundred years that define this historic Christian doctrine. And if you go back, if you were with us a year ago now, when we talked about the gospel and what is the gospel, I did mention that the creeds are problematic in, in the sense that they, they don't say everything. And we need to remember that, that they are not all inclusive of everything that's important about Christianity. They were developed at a particular time in response to a particular problem to identify the truth of the church, the truth of the gospel. But for example, the Apostle Creed says nothing about the life and teachings of Jesus, right? And so part of the problem with being creed-only people is we say that God created the world, that Jesus was born, and then he was crucified under Pilate, but we admit we don't even say anything about the life and teaching of Jesus. Like the gospels are pointless or useless if you are strictly creedal. You get the birth narrative and you can skip all the way to the end, but all the teachings and the, the miracles and the parables and everything that Jesus said and did aren't encapsulated in the creed. So if you, if you pay attention only to creeds, you miss much of that. And, and I just want to bring that to light. And, and the reason for that was that at that time and place when the creeds were developed, that wasn't the controversy. We weren't debating necessarily about what Jesus said and did. We were debating what is the status of the Trinity, right? What, 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 are, what, is, what are the core like, theological or philosophical things about um, God and Jesus and how they related to each other? Those are, the, those are the things that were becoming problematic, how we actually think about that at a higher level. And that was why creeds are developed. And so they're important, they're crucial, but they're not exhaustive, all right? So we just want to make that sort of caveat as we get started. Um, <laughs> And have you ever seen, I'm sure you have, like the Idiot's Guide books, like Idiot's Guide to Computing or to uh, Stock Market or, you know, whatever. There are hundreds of them, right? The creeds in some way function kind of like an Idiot's Guide to Christianity. They're the, the, the core distilled, like the most basic statements that we can make to describe or tell someone what, what we think or what we believe or what's really important. Um, the, nice, or the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to use as our guide, through this uh, was developed around 200 AD. So it is the most historic of the creeds. The Nicene Creed would come out of the 300s. Um, the Constantinople one, I think, is in the 400s or late, late 300s, I believe, actually. So this one is the first. Um, and 
it becomes, and the creeds therefore become sort of the gold standard or the standard by which we can measure and test teaching. Okay, So we talked a couple weeks ago about making sure that you are paying attention to the people that you listen to. I encourage you to go to listen to other teachers, other pastors from other churches that have different perspectives than I do, and that we can come together and we can talk about it and we can bounce ideas off each other and we all learn as a result of that. But be sure and be careful who you listen to. One of the ways you can be careful and test is to run what they're saying up against these historic creeds because, like I said, they're sort of the, the gold standard that lays out the historic doctrinal truth of the, of, of the faith. And I will say if you disagree with any point of these creeds, uh, whether they disagree or whether you find yourself in the course of our conversation saying, oh, I don't know about that, we need to talk, okay? Because there, there is some wiggle room in how we understand what they said, but by and large, if you're disagreeing with creedal statements, there's a question as to whether or not what you understand as the faith is truly the faith. They're that important, okay? This is historic doctrine. This is where you put a fl- we put a flag in the sand, flag in the ground, and say, this is the, the truth. We don't move off of this one. And that's why they're so important and why we would use them when we're talking about doctrines. Um, in other words, they are, in, in many ways, the tool by which we would follow Paul's instruction to make sure that the doctrine, the truth, the teaching is kept pure. And we are going to use the Apostles' Creed in many ways as sort of like a, a travel bag. So it's, it's a statement, but it can be unpacked. And there's, there are many other scriptural avenues and scriptural supports for each of those statements. There are broader ways in which we think about them. And so like today, we're going to look at the very beginning of the Apostles' Creed, which starts with, I believe. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to believe? Well, that question then sends us off in a number of different places. And we have to pull together quite a bit of other scripture when we talk about what it means to believe, what it means to be a people of belief, of faith. Um, And particularly in our culture, as we come out of and sort of at the end of the modern period of the Enlightenment, what does it mean to be people of faith rather than people of proof? Right? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Um, and I'll just repeat, because it bears repeating, any rejection of the creed leads, inevitably leads you into areas of heresy. So just be aware of that. And so we are going to um, use as our sort of guiding and entryway today um, this Hebrews passage, which says, now faith, this is 11.1, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. And so I just want to put that out there. It's very brief uh, as an introduction to what we're going to say today and just say uh, by way of summary as we get started, faith is not proof. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, in, in some way it is. I want to talk about that, but uh, not in the way that we, our modern enlightenment ways, minds want to have proof of God or proof of existence. Okay. Um, and so let's jump into the creed itself. I'm going to invite you to say this with me. We, I don't know that we've said this frequently or things like this in this service much, um, but I'll just begin. If you want to join in, please do. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 
So that's the Apostles' Creed. And many of you probably have said that time and time again throughout your life. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you said something in that Apostles' Creed and you're like, well, I don't know about that, right? So hang on to those questions, right? Or that, or that moment, or for me, I'll just tell you, like I've always like read, he descended to the dead and thought, hmm, how biblical is that? Like, I don't remember reading that. Um, and so we're gonna talk about that when we come to it. That's one, that's one of the questions I've always had. Um, there's an answer. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about it when we get there. Um, but if you have questions, just put them in the back of your head or, or let me know, especially. We, we are literally going to parse this and go sort of, like I said, deeper. We're gonna use this as a jumping off point to go deeper. So if we read that and you're like, I don't know about that, let me know because I'll make sure we address those particular issues or whatever question you have as we get to that part of the, of the creed. Does that make sense? Um, so some feedback would be great, right? Um, if you know me, you, you know I love conversation. So today we're starting just simply with I believe, right? This is the first statement that is made in the creed. What does it mean? What does it mean to say, I believe? I accept it as true. That's good. I like that. Does anybody have any other thing they want to add to that? No. What I depend on? Okay. Yeah, Kathy, you got something? Say that again. You sit in it like a chair. <laughs> yeah. 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 These are all good insights. You can get up and teach this lesson, I think. Um, a lot of this is going to be kind of, I think, review for a lot of us. Um, but hopefully, as we go through the conversations, there's just new angles and in, in ways about thinking about this. But I believe, as we start, I believe, um, it, it's a statement and it's an acknowledgement. The, court, the, the creed forces us to understand that Life is a, our life as human beings is a life of faith, right? We go through our life with, with faith, not only as Christians in Jesus, but just as human beings. We must have faith in the things around us, the things we're told, the things we know to be true. We know to be true from science, right? How many of you are nuclear physics, physicists? Not me. I don't know how it works. I can't prove to you how it works. I simply have faith that somebody else does, and what they're telling me is true. And that to the extent that my power comes from a nuclear power plant, when I turn it on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work, right? It's going to keep my food cold and it's not going to go sour and get my family sick, right? Or even if we run on a coal plant, like I don't know how that works. I mean, I know you burn it and somehow it burns energy. I think steam and turns turbines or something like that, but I could never build a plant. Could you? We simply have faith in the system, the institutions, the, the world around us, the way that things have been operated, the way that we've experienced them to operate, right? I trust the light's going to turn on because every day of my life I've turned that switch and it's turned on, right? Um, but that's the way our life works. We as human beings, I mean, think about when you, you're not going to remember when you were a newborn child or very young, but many of us in here have had kids. Those kids look to their parents to be sort of their anchor, their rock. They need something to be their foundation from which they can live life. You're finding this out, right? Right? Renly needs to know that dad is secure, that dad's a solid place that's going to take care of her, that's going to tr that she can trust in. And when a child has that firm foundation, that foundation of faith in their parents, they then feel free to go and explore the world. And if they don't have a solid base, a faith in their parents, they're not able to properly go out in the world for fear that they're going to be out on their own. Right? And this is a psychological reality that doesn't end when you're small. 
We carry that need for a foundation, for an anchor, for a rock, a place to confide in, to trust a place or a person or a community that we can rely on when things get tough. Otherwise, we'd never leave our house, right? And so as humans, it's just a reality of what it means to be human is that we are a people of faith, right? And you can choose what you have your faith in, right? You can have faith in science. You can have faith in reason. You can have faith in your seatbelt when you get in the car that if you get in an accident, it's going to protect you or your airbag. You know, we have faith in lots of different things. But what you can't choose is whether or not you have faith. And many teachers have said this in many more eloquent ways than I just have. But the reality is as human beings, we direct our desire and our faith and our we seek our foundation somewhere. And it could be an institution, it could be a theology, an idea, um, it could be other people, but something serves in our life as our rock and our foundation in which we have faith. It's not a matter of scientific uh, discourse or rational proof. It is the, just the area that we decide that we're going to trust. And we may not have ever made a conscious decision to trust that, but we find ourselves trusting that. It's just part of being human, Right? And so as we open up the creed, it, it's very important because it compels us and reminds us that we are people of faith, that we function by having belief in something, right? And so today, as we go through this, we're going to talk about the Christian life as a faith story, um, as an overview of where we're going today. We're going to talk about, some of these are going to be very brief, but faith as fact, faith as trust, which is kind of what got echoed when I asked you what uh, belief was. It was uh, Kathy said, like sitting in a chair, you just believe. Every time you sit down, it's going to catch you, and it's going to be there. You believe and you trust. I talk about faith as obedience, um, a little bit about the elephant in the room. We'll get there when we get there, and then we're going to end talking a little bit about mystery. Um, and so very briefly, the, the first one, faith is fact. This is, if you recall from those pastoral epistles, we talk about how Paul uses that Greek word for faith, which is pistis. He uses that in two different terms, two different ways. One is having faith and belief, and the other is the faith. And the faith is what we're talking about when we say faith as fact, right? So this is, in essence, it is the doctrinal statements that the church has put forward. It is the facts of the faith, the facts of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, the facts about God, how he relates to the world, the facts of the Great Commission and our call as people as we come into that family. These are the statements, the faith facts. It is the faith, right? Um, and that's what Paul uh, admonishes his followers to make sure that we keep pure. They are the core tenets, and importantly, they are the witness of Paul and the apostles. It is what Jesus gave to them and what they gave to the next generation has been passed on generation after generation. And so the creed calls us to have faith or belief in these facts, right? And so that, that is, in essence, the faith. Faith is fact, and that's all we're going to say about that today. The next one is faith is trust, which um, kind of got hit right on the head uh, as, we, as I asked that question, but this is uh, the conviction that what we hope for will someday happen, right? And that may be uh, a hope in the coming age, right? Or it may be a hope that uh, Ray's going to be okay, right? It could be something that's imminent or it could be something that is eschatological off in the distance sometime when at the second coming, right? Both of those are faith and hope. It could be a hope that the baseball game is going to be fun, Right? And it's not going to blow up and you're not going to have an argument with your son and it's going to be a terrible experience, right? We hope and we believe and we, we trust that these things are going to, that are going to be good because God has made these promises to us. Uh, maybe not that the baseball games would be great. But you go to the Reds? 
Okay, okay, all right. I'm going to say if it's going to the Reds, but it's not going to be great, I can tell you that, right? <laughs> the Clippers games are awesome. Minor league, if you've never been to a minor league baseball game, they're, they're way more fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I recommend that, but that's a sidetrack. Another conversation for another day. Um, but Hebrews tells us, right, as we read before, that faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, right? So it is this sort of looking forward, this trusting that what God has promised to us will happen, right? And, and we have faith in the promises and the faithfulness of God himself. In fact, Karl Barth, who is a, a notable theologian from the last century, says that faith is trust in the divine faithfulness. And so we trust that God will be faithful, that he will be righteous in the way that we've talked about it over and over, that God will act in accordance with his promises towards us. We put that one in the bank and we trust. We, we have trust in that. It is the chair, as Kathy said, that we sit on or the ground that we walk on. We wake up in the morning and we can go do things because we have faith in God and his promises, right? We can live the Christian life. We can strive and pray to be and try to live out uh, a life as the hands and feet of Jesus because we trust that God is with us as he's promised to be. We trust that what we're saying is true, right? We, we were, we, we're staking our life on this. We're literally staking our eternity on the truth of, of the, the faith facts, right? So we have faith in the faith, so to speak, right? And, and this sort of faith is not a one-off thing. Some of you may have conversion experiences. I got asked that recently. Tell me about the time when you became a Christian. Uh, well, I don't know, right? I was born into a faithful family that took us to church and I just grew up in the faith. And so I don't have this moment in my life when I can say that's when I became a Christian. I have important moments in that journey. I have crisis of faith. I have moments where I doubt and I scream at God and I yell at him and I'm through with it, right? That's happened. I can talk to you about those another time. Um, but I don't have this one moment of, of coming to faith. But faith is not that one moment. That is a particular moment in the faith journey. Faith as trust is an everyday decision, an everyday reality, an everyday journey of growing into a life with Jesus, with the Spirit, with God, and coming to a greater and more full trust in Him and His promises. Okay, and so faith as trust is a, is a journey, right? We are on a faith journey. It's a faith story, as I said before, right? And it becomes a way of life. And if you think about the Psalms, what's interesting about the Psalms, um, and if you don't read the Psalms on a daily basis, I would encourage you to do that. Pick it up and read one a day. Uh, there are quite a few of them. It'll take you a while to do that. Some people read three and four a day in order to get through it in a month. Um, but however you want to do it, it's fine. But uh, there are many church traditions uh, which have as part of their daily routine, reading multiple Psalms every day. So that by the time you become 40 or 50 or 60, like you've, you've read these things hundreds of times and they become part of your life. And one of the reasons is they are such an honest, beautiful description of faithful, in this case, largely men, probably all men, um, who, who were wrestling at lots of times. I mean, lots of these Psalms are cries out in the midst of anguish suffering, persecution. Think about David as he's hunted down by Saul because Saul knows that he's going to replace him as king. And so there's all sorts of drama that goes on there. But in the Psalms, we have the prayers and the songs of David himself in the midst of being hunted, crying out to God. And for our purposes of our conversation today, what they show us is that faith is something that happens even in the midst of obstacles and any rational or reasonable reasonable um, argument or experience that would say to you that God doesn't exist, right? And that's important to realize that what we're saying about faith is it isn't necessarily always rational or reasonable, that faith is a trust that we have in God regardless of what the circumstances are. 
Think about the book of Job, for example. I mean, there's a, there's a beautiful picture of Job whose life gets decimated and time and time again, a series of friends comes to him and says, look at your life. There is no God. Your, your God has not been good to you. You should be cursing God. And you know what? They're right. Given what's happened to Job, why would he have faith in a good, good God? I mean, his, his livestock, his, you know, all of his things got taken from him. His family got taken from him. Everything that he loves and everything that made his life good got destroyed and wrecked and ripped away from him. Why, in that situation, would you continue to trust and claim a good God? Right? But he does. And so that example tells us that faith, this trust, in some ways transcends and goes beyond and uh, stands in the face of a lot of our experience sometimes, a lot of reason often, and says, no, I trust anyway. Right? There, are, uh, there are good reasons for not believing in God. We'll just be honest about that. There are also really good reasons for believing in God. And the question is, which are you going to do? And standing in the, the column that says, I'm going to believe in God, is a belief. We're talking about a life of belief of faith. All right. Um, and it is this journey. It is a developing of our own trust in God as we, as we grow into his faithfulness. And then the other way that we talk about faith within the scriptures is that of obedience. And I want to be a little careful here because um, they are necessarily linked, but they are not equivalent. All right. So if we talk about faith as obedience, which in the history of the church, that has happened. At times we have played the obedience card very heavy and said that, if, you know, in order to be faithful, you, you obey, you obey, you obey, and that becomes the message of the church. It becomes, that's when we, we talk about like legalism and, and uh, you can even get into a sort of earning your way into God. That's not accurate. But it's equally inaccurate to say that faith has nothing to do with obedience, right? We have plenty of examples, uh, James being one of them, John being another one of them, who write letters and talk about your faith must work itself out in action, that action is obedient action, doing the thing that God said. You believe God. You trust that God is your God, is a good God. You trust that Jesus is your king. So you go do what he says, right? We've talked about this before. This is, this is why understanding the gospel as Jesus is king is important because you have a king who makes demands of you, who's told you to do things. Do you trust that he's king or not? And if you do, you necessarily go and obey and you do the things that God has called you to do. Um, if we don't, we end up, if we don't, pay attention to the need for obedience and faithful action, then we end up with a, a faith that is completely hollow, which is nothing more than mental ascension. that says, yeah, 10 years ago, I said a prayer, and so I believe. But if we look at lives and the way that we live and, and the things that we do, the things that we say, uh, the ways that we act, we are absolutely no different for having said that than we would be if we hadn't said it. And so it becomes this hollow, meaningless faith. And this, unfortunately, happens way too often also. So obedience needs to be brought in there. Uh, Michael Bird, he's an Australian um, professor and theologian. He, he has said that faith cannot exist without being obedient, much as the sun cannot exist without shining. Which I think that's a really good description of it. That not every you know shining, putting off light is not everything you need to know about the sun. It's not everything there is to the sun. But the sun can't be the sun without putting off light. Right? You cannot be faithful. You cannot have true faith without being obedient. And that's the message of James, right? Uh, faith without action is, is dead. So what about this, this elephant in the room? So this is where the, the flip side of faith comes in, and we need to talk for a moment about doubt. 
because all too often we stand up in rooms like this or in small groups and we talk about the virtues and the benefits of faith and being faithful people and we should all have faith and I believe and you believe and let's pray and let's go home. And what we don't often want to talk about is the many ways in which we come up against circumstances in our life or maybe we set a line of the creed that just hit us wrong or we've read a scripture and it just doesn't make any sense and all of a sudden we have doubts. And it could be little doubts or it could be monumental doubts. You could be in a life circumstance like Job where everything is going wrong. And Job's a nice story. It's also a story. We don't even, scholars don't think that's, a, that's not real. It's, a, it's a, like a fable that was told within the history of Israel to explain a truth about God, right? And so it's an ideal, but many of us don't live up to that ideal. I mean, that's, I can't imagine having that much evil and death and despair come upon one's life and cling to God the way that Job does. I hope, I hope that I would. I don't know that I would. It would come with a heavy dose of doubt, right? And these are the moments that we have crises of faith when things happen in our life that in some way or other, we perceive not to be in line with God's promises or our desires or what, you know, just what we want about our life. And then all of a sudden we're doubting the goodness of God. But doubt is a part of a life of faith because Christianity what the creed is calling us to recognize is that this thing is not provable. How many of you just got a little awkward in your seat? Like you can't prove faith. You can't prove God, right? Now, can we give good reasons for God? Yeah, sure. Right. But I've mentioned before that my degree, one of my degrees in college was philosophy. And so I went to a very liberal, liberal arts college that uh, had a philosophy department and I found philosophy and I loved, fell in love with it. And I, I loved sitting in rooms just arguing with people. <laughs> that was fun for me. Maybe not be fun for you, but it was for me. Um, uh, but having these conversations about meanings of words and existence and all these sorts of things. But one of the things that I learned coming out of it is the truth that this thing is not provable, right? We live in a world, you've probably heard this, this term postmodernism. You know, do, do people know what that, you've heard that? Do you know what it is? This idea that like everything is relative and this is my experience and my truth, but you have your own truth. The reason that happens is because the whole modern philosophical project was an attempt to reason our way to truth. And in fact, early on and throughout a lot of it, it was Christian theologians trying to give rational explanations and rational proofs for the existence of God. But what happens is they fail. Right? Every philosopher comes up and says, aha, I've got it, I've got the argument, and the next one comes, nope, that didn't work because of this. And time and time again, we're shown that these reasonable, rational arguments don't hold up under intense philosophical scrutiny. And what we realize is we can't rationally or reasonably prove the existence of God. You can't do it. And so finally, it got to the point where the philosophers just said, okay, well, we're done with it. We can't know any of that stuff, and we end up in what we call postmodernism. And we're sort of moving out of that philosophically now and, and in the philosophical thought, but we are stuck in a world that believes that and functions that way, right? Now, does that mean that it's not true? No. Does that mean that you don't have proof in your life? No. But what it does mean is that this, this modern attempt, this modern mean period of enlightenment, attempt to rationally prove God is not possible. And in some ways, why did we ever think it was, right? What are we talking about? We're talking about a transcendent, infinite, all-powerful God, who says in his scriptures that he is above us. 
He is beyond our capable, our, our capacity to comprehend him, right? And in some, like, for us sitting at the end of modernism, it can be really unsettling, unnerving to come to the realization that this is not something that is scientifically or rationally provable, right? But that's what the writers of the Creed knew all along because they said, I believe, not I can prove, right? I believe. It's, this is a thing of faith. Now, the other flip side of that is you can't disprove God either. That project has failed as well because God is outside of the tools. God created us with certain faculties and ways in which we think and interpret the world around us. God is beyond those things, right? He's outside of that. He has crashed into the midst of it through his spirit and tangibly and incarnate in his son. So he enters into our experience, but he's also beyond our experience. And so there, there, there's really no reason that we would really think or expect other than we live and have inherited this mindset that says it's possible to be able to rationally or scientifically prove that God exists. Right? That's just an assumption that some old dudes in a room made one day and everybody said, yeah, that sounds good. Let's try. Um, and so a lot of people are really upset about this whole postmodernism thing uh, because uh, everybody's sort of in this world of relativism and what's your truth is my truth. And, and just because you believe it doesn't mean that I have to believe it. And I'll actually tell you, like, I, I'm glad that it happened, right? Because we, we no longer have to kid ourselves about reason or right. We, we no longer have to prove it, right? I no longer have to go into the world and say, here are, here's the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, argument for design, all of which exist, all of which are good reasons. It makes sense, but it's not definitive proof. And so now we can kind of let go of that. It's like you can breathe again. You don't have to prove to everyone you run into that God exists. Instead, what we understand is that the, athe the atheist or the non-believer like, often will look at Christianity and say something like it's, it's nonsense or it's just a you know, fool's errand or it's just a, a leap, a jump into the dark. Right? You're just a wish and a prayer, hoping that there's a God out there. But those of us who are in this family, who have this thing called faith, we understand that far from being a jump or a leap into the dark, it is a leap, but it's a leap into the light. Right? Jesus, I mean, Jesus is the light, right? He even says that. Um, but as you enter into the system of belief, even as you decide as someone who doesn't believe that I just want to check it out, Inevitably, what happens is as you get into the story, as you enter the realm of faith, as you kind of let go of a need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it's true, and you instead enter faithfully into the life of faith, of the community, with Jesus, you find your own proof, right? And that's some of the truth of the postmodern experience or statement is, as Christians, we know it to be true. You can put a stake in the ground and say, this is true. Not because you have a reasonable, rational argument or scientific proof, but because you have an experience with the living God. Right? And so as we come to the idea of doubt, and I don't know or I don't have a solid proof, and, and for some people, for me, the first time I realized there is no real rational argument that proves that God exists, like that was a moment like, well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's not true. And that can be unsettling. The, the ground moves beneath you. A little bit. Because again, if you put your faith in reason, and then we take that rug out from underneath you, 
you're going you're gonna to be like the kid whose parents aren't quite the safe space and they don't really know how to operate in the world at that moment. Right? But what we're saying is that faith, the I believe, is a statement that although it's not that, although it's not a reasonable, rational, scientific syllogism that proves the existence of God, it is an experience that we have all stepped into, that we have all, in some ways, met Jesus. We have met our creator. We have been indwelled, as we talked weeks ago, about with the Holy Spirit. We have experienced this thing, and it's become our truth, our reality. Not that it's just my truth, because I think so, but I have a legitimate relationship with the creator God who has indwelled me, who's transformed me, who has been there for me, who I have gone through the dark valleys, and he's brought me out the other side. And though in the midst of it, I had my doubts, and I worried, and I cried out to him, and he didn't seem to answer. Now I look back, and I see, oh, he was here, and he was here, and he was here. And here's where he held me, and here's somebody who sent, he sent into my life in that moment, right? God sends people and experiences into your life that show you this is true. And so when you say, I believe, it's not on a whim. It's not just because it sounds good or you're hopeful. It's not a leap into the dark without any reason to believe that the atheist would tell us it is. It is my experience of God that proved it to me. And I would imagine that it's your experience of God, your faithfulness, your long-haul faithfulness, your trust in God, and God's coming through for you time and time again that proves it to you. I would say that if you don't have those experiences, then we perhaps need to have a talk. Maybe we need to talk about those experiences and it's a matter of just saying, well, actually, here's where God showed up, right? Here's the way in which God has worked in your life. Here are the experiences that prove to you that God exists. More often than not, it's just a matter of us not having our eyes open, not knowing what to look for or listen for. And if we don't have those experiences, all we're left with is ultimately doubt, because if we go down a path of reason and ration and science expecting to find a proof for God, what we know is we're probably going to be disappointed. It may be that there's some brilliant philosopher that's just not graced the world yet. There's some scientific discovery that just hasn't happened yet. So maybe it's coming. But in our current climate and what we know about the world, it is our experiences with God that ground our faith. You don't look at your baby and give them a rational proof for why you're their parent and you love them and they can trust you. They get in situations and time and time again, you come to their aid. Time and time again, they know that when they get hurt or they have trouble or they get their feelings hurt or they're sad or they're hungry, they can turn to you and you'll fix it. That you're there to love them and care for them. It is the same with us. That is the human experience. And stepping into the life of faith, into the journey of faith, when we say, I believe, what we're saying is, we are the people who have stepped into the light and time and time again, God has been there for us. And we have every reason to trust and to believe. What it also does is leaves open plenty of room for mystery. And our modern world has, in many ways, tried to, to screen this out completely. But we know that we can't prove faith. We know that there are good, but there are good reasons, reasonably and experientially, good reasons for us to believe. But there's also much that we don't know. We acknowledge that God is way above us and beyond us. And there's much, despite all that we're given in the scriptural text, there's much that we don't know about God. 
We don't even know what's going to happen in the next hour, let alone the rest of our lives. We know that at some point in the future, and we hope for the return of God, the return of Jesus, the establishment of the kingdom on earth, the new heavens, the new earth. We trust in that. I don't know how or when. I don't know every intimate detail about God and the way he works and the way he thinks. And so there's, there's much mystery. And in some ways, that's exciting, right? But again, we believe, we have faith in the midst of sometimes the unknown even. Two points about that. One, that if we could grasp everything about God, it wouldn't be God. If you could know everything there is to know about God, you would be more than God. It works the other way. He knows everything about you. And we are left a little in the dark about him. And the other is that life is this journey. It is this mysterious, unexpected journey in which we're going to wake up tomorrow and new things will happen. New experiences will happen. Tragedies will befall us. Great things will happen. New friends will come into our life. And so we get to look forward of this life of faith with God in this world as we are called to live with other people, to love other people, to live out the truth of God, the gospel of God. This is a life of faith. It's justified, it's reasonable, but it is faith nonetheless. We certainly have experiences that compel us and they solidify our belief, but it also must keep us humble. I'm not out to convince people through rational argument that the gospel is true. I'm out to proclaim the gospel and invite people to come experience God. And if they decide that I'm full of nonsense and they don't want to believe and they don't want to come along, that doesn't offend me. It saddens me. It saddens me. But too often, when we think it's a, it's a rational proof, we get defensive. We get argumentative. We turn around and we try to you know, prove to them that we're right. It's a matter of faith. And it's a matter of being willing to experience God. If they're not willing to do that, if they want to remain in the dark... We will pray for them. We will ask God to open their eyes, to give them an experience that can ground their faith. But if someone doesn't believe, it's no threat. It's just not. If someone wants to deny the existence of Jesus, the existence of God, if someone wants to deny the core doctrines of our faith, that ultimately is no threat to our faith. Because at the end of the day, as we've said over and over, God is God. His truth is his truth, and we have experienced it. And therefore, we say, I believe. We live our life on that belief, trusting and believing and hoping, praying for the day when all will be, be made right. And in the interim, we believe the faith, the facts of the faith. We trust and we obey.